Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John. Before we get to this week's guest, I wanted to issue some thank yous. Last week was one of the biggest in hustle history, basically. Rightfully so, Robin Clark and Carlos Alomar's episodes kind of went viral. They were picked up by Simple Minds official websites. They were kind enough to tweet them out and send them out to their fans. DavidBowieNews.com sent them out. A number of other fan sites like Stargirl and New Gold Dreamers picked them up and sent them out to their fans. No joke. They were listened to or shared or commented on or retweeted or resent out a few thousand times. So I just want to say a quick thank you to any of those people who might be listening this week. Those two deserved a lot of attention. They got the attention. Our reach here is only so far. And so I'm really grateful that the right people discovered those conversations and hopefully they enjoyed them. I wish some of our others were that big. To me, everybody, no matter how big or small, deserves to be found and to be heard. But I'm really glad that the right people found those. And I also want to say a huge thank you to Jan Makevich, Jan the man, for producing the podcasts. Those wouldn't have done as well if they didn't sound so good. And so I wanted to let him know that he did an excellent job making them sound incredible. We're a DIY situation over here. Punk rock. We try to do this as cheaply and easily as we can. So I'm really grateful for him that he did such a good job. The sound, that guitar and that voice in this song, it's one of my favorites ever. And this week's guest is Murray Attaway, who was the lead singer of Guadalcanal Diary, who were one of the preeminent, one of the major college rock bands in America throughout the 80s. They never had like monster pop hits, but they were one of the most respected bands throughout the country during that time. They released four excellent albums, Murray put out a solo album in the early 90s, and then he's basically stepped away from music for the last 25 years. That was pretty much it. They were a great band, always compared to R.E.M., we talk about that a lot in here. Southern, jangly, power pop influenced, gothic influenced, killer heavy rock songs. They're awesome. Now, I gotta tell you, there's been a, a lot of baggage to come along with this interview. Murray and I first talked last August, seven months ago, over seven months ago. Went pretty well, I went back to look at it later to get it ready for production, and I realized the sound quality was terrible. I don't know what had happened, but especially on his end, you couldn't hear him very well. We were going to try and fix it and put it out anyway. It wouldn't have sounded that good. And Murray, when I mentioned this to him, he's like, look, I don't want crappy stuff out there with my name on it, let's just do it again. So easier said than done. It was another six months before we could find the time for both of us to talk. Then we're talking and his phone dies. I wait a while for him to call back into the line that I use to record the conversations. He's having trouble dialing in. Then he does and it dies again and then he's having trouble again. 
let me tell you guys, he is an intimidating figure. You do not want to make Murray Attaway mad, and yet I managed to do that. It was embarrassing and it was terrible. Thankfully, though, a couple weeks later, he let me finish this off. And then we had a perfectly fine conversation. No trouble there. Murray does not suffer fools. I am so grateful for him that he talked to me. I love him a lot, and I love their music a lot, and I hope you guys will too. By the way, just a heads up, the language in this one's pretty strong. So if you're listening in the car with kids, you may want to do whatever it is you do, but definitely earmuffs for this one. He called me from his home in Atlanta. Well, for starters, I wanted to kick it off with a story. About, and now, I, always, I usually start these with how I discovered the band, and that was I, fe- I heard you guys, after knowing your name for many, many years growing up and cooler kids that I knew would drop the name Guadalcanal Diary, when it first <laughs> hit me my set for myself was when I saw the video to Litany on VH1 Classic about 10 years ago. And poor VH1 Classics, not even really VH1 Classic anymore. I learned so much good music on VH1 Classic. That's so funny. Okay. But I wanted to tell you a separate story. So about six years ago, my daughter, who's now eight and a half, I don't think she was even two years old. If she was, she might have. She was barely two years old. And we're driving in the car. She's in her car seat in the back back seat. And we're listening to your solo album, In Thrall. (laughs) <laughs> and she said, Daddy, who is this? Not that she would even know if I said the name. And I right. said, oh, this is Murray Attaway. And she goes, oh, my gosh, this is beautiful. Oh, and how nice. I've always loved that my kid figured it out very quickly. In fact, I remember I was trying to find the exact day because I remember promptly putting that on Facebook. I was so proud of my two-year-old daughter <laughs> that she would – see the beauty in Murray Attaway. So nah, anyway, that's funny. Now, I do remember, if I remember correctly from a previous conversation, I had mentioned that I grew up in Salt Lake City, and you played a show there? Yeah, I played Salt there, yeah. I was were astonished you? at how yeah. stinky. Because, I mean, because it was right there. It was right there on the Salt Lake. And I was astonished how stinky the Salt Lake was. My God, I couldn't believe it. I've never actually been there before. I mean, I've been to Salt Lake City plenty of times, but had never been, like, right in front of the actual Salt Lake. My God in heaven, it stuck so bad. I don't know if I've ever noticed. I've been out there to a couple other shows. I noticed. It was really awful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Did you open for Johnny Clegg and Savuka, or they opened for you? <laughs> and there was a ton, like every black guy in the state of yeah, Utah yeah, was there yeah, that the, night. Yeah, that's what that's what I said. I, uh, <laughs> it's a good thing that we had that interview before. Every black person that lived in the state of Utah was right. at that show. Yeah. Which is like 17 people total. Yeah, they were like all in your concert. Exactly. <laughs> right. Oh, that's great. That makes me proud. I'm glad. Yeah, but what was really cool about it was that every black person that was there was really into what I was doing, too. That that was kind of cool. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it was. It was. It was like, it was like, please, God, can we just have some music, you know, just some different music? (laughs) It was really kind of funny. 
Oh, I'm so glad. That's great. Okay. <laughs> well, cool. Well, then I want to, so I wanted to throw out some little nuggets of how you've been in my life and, you know, where we connect and stuff like that. All right. But go. now, the origin story of Guadalcanal Diary is out there if people want to find it. But one thing I do think that is interesting is that you obviously in your songwriting have such a singular, unique vision. I don't know too many other songwriters, you know, that share a similar vision to you, at least not that are as big. I'm sure there's underground or whatever, but I just wonder where that comes from. When you're a teenager and you're in your bedroom with a guitar writing songs and you want to put them out there and share them with the world, why do the ideas that are in your brain seem like the right ideas? I always really, on purpose, did not want to write songs about girls and cars and stuff like that because I figured everybody else was doing it. Why would I want to repeat this? You know, so I would write songs about stuff that I met that mattered to me. Mm-hmm. On that first Guadalcanal album, I wrote the one that's about spontaneous human combustion. You know, I wrote that because I thought, well, you know, it's interesting. Why do I need to write stuff about girls and cars and shit, you know? Mm-hmm. I would write that kind of stuff. I'd, 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 whatever. And Jeff was a really good guy, too, as far right. as that goes. Jeff Walls. He was great because he shared the same vision in a way. He and I grew up together, and he was, like, not really into writing songs about cars and girls and then right. that was That's one of the huge. reasons that he was such a great partner for me is that he agreed with that you know That's huge it only works that way right because if you're a kid and you want to be and a we were star, we were kids right you guys met in like high school or something that's so right if, if you're and you have you know visions and hopes of becoming a rock star Writing songs like Fire from Heaven or, I mean, I've got your album in front of me, Gilbert Takes the Wheel, Why Do the Heathens Rage, those are, that's not top 40 material. We knew it wasn't. We knew we were not going to go anywhere with that stuff. We knew that what we were going to do was write the things that we liked, and we didn't think it was going to go anywhere. Oddly enough, those bands in those days, they all wanted to sort of bust out and, and you know, get really big and stuff like that. We really didn't think of that. What we thought of was we just want to make the music that we like. If it's odd, then it's odd. That's how we looked at it. It was and not success will come to you. Exactly. It, it, it right. was not the, the thing where we like, oh God, let's you know see if we can get really rich and famous. I mean, we never thought about that for a minute. I'll tell you right now. And I've said this in print before, our big deal 
was to headline the 688 Club on a Friday night. That was our big deal. And that That's was a amazing. big thing for us. It was like, yeah. oh, wow, okay, well, now we've done it. Yeah. You know? And then we yeah. went on and did more than that, but we didn't mean to. Was there ever any kind of label pressure or anything like that? Like, No, stuff, no, uh-uh, no. They wanted uh-uh. you to stay what you were. When we first started getting looked at by major labels, we were like, fuck you. Fuck everything that you think about us. We didn't want it. You know, it was really kind of funny because every single major label back in those days you know, I'm I'm talking about the Geffens, the Capitals, uh, everybody you can think of that was like hot shit back in those days sure. came after us, and we were basically like, "No, fuck you." It was really stupid of us because, you know, we could have gone ahead. I mean, we could have been like the butthole servers or whatever, and could have gone yeah. ahead and and made those records, but we didn't know we could. Because mm. nobody had done that before. We didn't know that we could do what we went on to do. We basically told everybody, go fuck yourself. And it was it was dumb. It was yeah. dumb as shit. It was really dumb. Because we well, had all these we had all these labels that were after us that were like, Oh, well, you know, Guadalcanal, yeah, hell yeah, you know. Yeah. But you know what 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 they really wanted back in those days? Huh. which was really pathetic and sad. And this is how the industry worked back then. They knew that REM had you know, really kicked ass. So what they were doing was they were sniffing around all the yeah. southern states looking for the next REM, and we were it. And we were the obvious one because, yeah. you know, why wouldn't you be? I mean, we're, yeah. we were the one. They came around us. They were like, oh, yeah, well, you know. And we're just like, fuck you. We're not that. You know, we don't want to be that. We don't want to have anything to do with you. This is what you want. This is not what we're going to do. Blah, blah, blah. You know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But that's what they were looking for. How do you think your career would have ended up differently? I mean, as it was, you guys still put out four quality albums. Maybe the first one was on an indie. Yeah, they, 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 were, they went up, right? They let me tell you something. To put those albums out was a struggle, too. I'll tell you what. Why? Not one oh. single album was what they wanted. Not one. So you would have, you had a major label sniffing at your door saying, come with us, we'll let and you then, be you, and then, but and you then, didn't want to go corporate. <laughs> and then after that... You know, I had, like, everybody and their brother going, oh, Murray Attaway, the lead singer of Guadalcanal Diary, you know, is going solo. Let's sign him. And they went nuts. You know, and it it was ridiculous. So how would your career have been different, do you think? If you had signed with one of the majors that was poking at you at the beginning, how do you think your fortunes would change? With Guadal or with me? With Guadal. Well, we wouldn't have done it. Well, I didn't know if you felt like you would have lasted longer or you would have been, had more promotion, so you would have sort of been more accepted on a bigger stage, or I, I wonder just how you're... Yeah, well, it's hard to say because yeah. we really wouldn't, as a band, have done it. We had the option, but we just and were wouldn't they coming have done with it. big advances? 
for you. Oh yeah, oh yeah, a lot of money. Your feet. Oh, money was always there. Yeah, money was always like you know. Yeah, fortunately, Guadal was smart, and we didn't like suck up to the money. That's sort of the sacrifice you make to stick with your vision. Is I can either take this chunk of money and compromise potentially. Or I can keep doing what I want to do. Well, like what we, were we saying, did, what, 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 what we learned from being on tour and and being on a major label like Electra, and we had a great deal with Electra. I mean, the, the the guy that that was our that was our A and R was a great guy, great guy. Good. Named Kevin Patrick. You know, I'm still friends with him to this day. Just a really good guy. It wasn't as though we were like completely screwed with that deal. I mean, he was uh-huh. a good guy. And so, you know, he, he really did care about music and that's what he cared about. But we used to have a big joke. And this really did happen to us, John. It, it, uh-huh. It's really true. It happened to us. Okay. We would pull up to a venue while we were on tour. And we used to always just rent our own like Winnebago and we would rent a truck for the crew and that's what we would do when we went on tour and there was more than one time when we would go on tour and we'd pull up to the venue and the opening band would pull up in like a big ass touring van you're doing it your way they're doing it their way <laughs> exactly right. and, they, and yeah. they go and they go god Guadal? Yeah. I mean, really? You know, we got this big this big touring bus. I mean, how come yeah. you guys aren't doing it? It's like, well, we're not doing it, kids, because wow. <laughs> you'll wow. find out pretty soon that you're going to pay for that. You're going to exactly. pay for it really hard. Yeah. So yeah. that's why so we didn't do it. The living large. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were, okay. they were living large. There was a great, 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 great band. Canadian band that opened for us for most of a tour. And they were just really good. And every show they showed up in this big ass tour bus. Uh, They were the Grapes of Wrath. That was their name. Oh, yeah, sure. I know them. Hours of hiding spent apart. The wall was all we'd share. About the closest Yeah, they were really good, too. Yeah. Real good band. I mean, just as good as you could possibly be. And, I mean, totally. it was it, it was kind of like, yes, 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 this is perfect. This is what we want Bollicle to do, you know, play with a yeah. band this good. 
And they were always like, well, why, why are you doing this? It's like, kids, seriously, <laughs> you're going to figure this one out pretty soon. And they did. Kevin Kane was one of the guys in that band. He's still a friend of mine on Facebook. Occasionally, we'll laugh about that on Facebook. Yeah. That is classic. But they got fucked. Yeah. They were on yeah, Capitol. Well, Capitol shelling out money, and they, yeah, and ultimately, <laughs> they don't sell every, every yeah. dime they wanted. Right. right. <laughs> every dime so, they wanted for that big bus, and then they fucked them. Yep. Yeah. But now, <laughs> when you guys went to Electra, did they not do the same for you? No. They were mad at us because we wouldn't do it, but we were like, no, fuck you. Really? Uh-uh. Yep. So there were literal talks about, look, we want to literal send you talks, John. traveling in this way, and we want to yes. promote you yes. this way, and you're yes. like, look, don't yes. spend the money, let us keep doing our thing. <laughs> yes. They didn't think it was a very good way for us to travel, and we were just like, oh, we don't give a fuck, you know, sure. fuck you. You know, we'd rather bring money home. Are you kidding? Is, an image, is part of it maybe an image thing for them? Like, we can't have our artists out there in broken down rental That's vans. That's what they thought. We've got to show other labels and other artists <laughs> that we treat people with style, and we treat them right. And we, you yeah. know, it's... With uh, their it's, money. It's almost like a recruit. Exactly, yeah. It's another. It's a way to kind of recruit and say, look, this is why we're awesome is because we can treat bands like Guadalcanal. Like yeah, me. yeah. We 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 figured out real early that to get treated like that was coming out of your pockets, yeah. and we were just like, eh, that's not happening. Yeah. You know, they didn't like it at all. But well, we just told them to eat a bag of shit. You know, you should pardon the expression, but that's what we no, told them. That's it. Eat a you, bag of shit, and. We just went on with our lives. It's embarrassing. You got your opening act pulling up in a big motorhome tour bus tour thing, and you're in a Winnebago. Are you kidding me? You can't do that. We were like, yeah, we can do it too. They were like, you can't do it. They're like, watch us. Crazy. You don't have any control. That was the good thing. Back in those days, the record company could bitch and holler about how you toured, but they couldn't do anything about it. I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they couldn't do shit about it. It was wonderful. So you could go and tour any way you wanted to, and they could holler, but yeah. they couldn't do anything about it. And they weren't trying to compromise your sound. They left that part alone, right? In what way? I'm just surprised that this, this this label that's at least trying to control how you travel isn't also meddling in your music. Oh, God, no. They? Let me put it this way. I made four Guadalcanal albums, and there is a fifth one that's a live album that we did just mm-hmm. with our own money and stuff. It's the best record we ever made because it actually really? sounds like us. Yes. It really sounds like us. It sounds like how we sounded. You know, I hated the way we sounded. I mean, I didn't hate it, you know, uh-huh. too much. But we never sounded right. But then we did that live record in the 90s. And yeah. it sounded just exactly like what we were supposed to sound like. Well, 
that's the one I've never heard, and I've always wanted to. In fact, just today I was looking for it. You know, it resells used on Amazon for one hundred and twenty dollars. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, one hundred nineteen ninety nine for at your birthday party. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I so, should, I should like stick a couple of them out there. You should. I mean, I love you a lot, but not 120 bucks worth, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, shit, I wouldn't you know? pay that much for me either. Yeah. Trust me. Right. Well, that's a good, thing. Okay. That's a good, um, good record. And it sounds like Guadalcanal actually sounded. Geez. I'm going to have to get my hands on that. I was going to bring this up later, but I'll do it now. I heard your second solo album today. Uh, Delirium. Yeah. How did you hear that? You didn't hear all of it because there's 21 songs. Oh, then no, I heard 11 of them. I remember that it was out, that it had been shelved, but then I remembered after we talked before that I thought I had seen articles that it was out there or maybe blogs or something like that. And so today yeah. I thought, let's try again. And I, sure enough, I found what, you know, 11 tracks of Delirium. So what'd you find? Prince Charming. Oh um, God! Curve really? The earth, if the walls could talk. Really? Yeah. The sun at dusk. You are there. Heroes in the water. Oh, what? Heroes yeah. in the water? No, 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 no. That's not. That's what I have here. Uh, oh, you heard? You heard that thing that? Um, yeah, it's not called Heroes in the Water. That's the one with uh, Amy and Emily on it from the Indigos. Oh, okay. And, and okay. Peter Hall's Apple. That's a good song. Yeah, it was all. I mean, it was just great to hear more of you. You know, free at last in a dream. I had an answer. Long hard ride and delirium. Wow. I wondered how you'd feel about that. So, did somebody uh, get a hand, get their hands on like a demo or something like that? Yeah, or you know how okay. people do. I mean, you know, sure. somebody's got it. I mean, it's, I, I don't care. It's not sure. like it's offensive to me. I mean, it's fun to have that stuff out there. I would rather have it out as a real deal. You know, I'd yeah. rather go, okay, look, hey, my name's Murray, and here's my stuff. But, Sanctioned but by that, you. That, that didn't yeah. happen. And, yeah. and it's been out there for years. I mean, you know, it, it's amazing to me. I'll I'll go on. Somebody will say something to me like, oh, have you seen this thing on Facebook or on YouTube? And I'll go on YouTube, and I'll look, and I'll, it's like, I mean, who got this? You know, really? You know, why? I don't even have this. Why do they have it? You know? know. Kind of thing. You know, it's so weird. And and there'll be this stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, you don't really mind it so much. Just because, you know, I'd rather people listen to me. I I, I don't really care. I'm not going to make any money off of it anymore anyway. Right, you know. Right. So, you know, I don't really care that people have it. I'd rather they have it. I'd rather they yeah. listen to it and go, "Oh, well, that's a cool song yeah. by that guy," you know. And you sure. know, he he didn't do anything much after Guadalcanal, and you know, it's kind of feel good. I, people okay with care that. enough to find to go out and find it, though. I mean, I think I found it on a blog or something like that. Yeah, I mean, people care well, see, enough. You found it, though. But, 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 like, most people aren't going to go, most people aren't going to go, oh, well, I, you know, what what Murray Attaway's doing now. Most people are not going to do that. 
Well, I hope you know, they do, because that's why I put these podcasts out, is for the people who are curious <laughs> well, about the people that I want to talk to. They might do it now, but, yeah, you know, yeah. in, it, normally they wouldn't do it, you know, because right. they're not going to go, oh, I wonder what Murray Attaway is doing now, you know. i got to tell you, every time you ever do any kind of research or look up anything on the history of Guadalcanal Diary, a big piece that comes up in Murray's story is that when his debut solo album came out, his label gave away the first 50,000 copies. I've always assumed that that meant that they gave them away to the consumers, but it turns out that's not it. They gave it away to distributors, which is nowhere close as interesting as what I thought was going on. I could have cut that out. I felt pretty dumb after I found that out, but I left it in there in case other people who have read the same thing and wondered the same thing, now the record is straight for everyone. Maybe that's a big deal, I don't know, but it doesn't really affect us and I thought it did so anyway here's the rest of my conversation with Murray one thing I did want to know though is two things number one do you have an idea of how many records Guadalcanal sold throughout their history and then also we were talking about being out on the road and stuff like that do you Uh, remember any particularly great shows do you remember any (laughs) you know like you opened for a band you've always admired or someone opened for you or you met a hero or anything like that you want to go with the first one first sure ask me that question again please do you know how many units you guys sold i don't we sold a bunch of records not really sure how many we sold i'm not really sure that anybody knows how many we sold we sold a lot uh in the Electra days, there was, you know, back in those days, you didn't really get a really good accounting of stuff, which is probably not a great idea, and I probably should sue somebody, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but, yeah, there was, a, we sold a lot of records back in those days. Um, okay. You heard it, right? Yeah. Well, I a little bit. Not, not that much, actually. I mean, I heard the name... I was familiar with the name more than I I think I actually heard the songs on the radio. Mm. I think I would see, I think maybe I saw the video for Watusi Rodeo on like postmodern MTV wow. and that kind of a thing. Video. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah. But that huh. was about it. It was more a name recognition than it was song recognition. Ah, but, well, that's, that's interesting but, to know. Well, that's, you know, and that's growing up in Salt Lake City. Who knows how... It, <laughs> you know, how much we were seeing what was really going on out there. Good old Salt Lake, yeah. Yeah, good old Salt Lake. Tell me about your a big like a show that stands out as being above and beyond the rest. With Guadal or without Guadal? With. With Guadal, I have to say that there was a period of time where, and I'm ashamed of this, that... We were on tour. We were in the middle of a tour, and our manager was a guy named Russell Carter. Uh, good God. Russell was the manager for the Indigos and a bunch of other uh-huh. people, Matthew Sweet and all these other people. Okay. Anyway, he called us, and he said, Electra has learned that REM is going to be doing this West Coast tour, and they have lost their opener. 
and they really want you to do it. And that literally, we were on tour when he was saying this, and I was just like, well, we're so not going to do that. Why? Is that just too on the nose? Well, I'm I'm getting ready to tell you the story. And so we had a meeting, the band did, and I basically castigated the band. I said, we are so not going to do this. At all. I, I, I wasn't the leader of the band. I was just in the band. And I said, we're not going to do this. And they were like, well, yeah, we are going to. And I said, you people are the stupidest people on the face of the earth. If you want to do this, how goddamn stupid are you? Are you kidding me? Fuck you. Hell no. You know, I mean, I just got all up one side down the other. Just said no. But they outvoted me, and Guadalcanal was a was a democracy, so they outvoted me. And you know, to be fair, I mean, the REM boys were always buddies of ours. And what happened was, we did that leg of that tour, and of course, because you know they were buddies of ours, we had a good time with it. But what really happened was. There was a lot of press that came out about that and said, well, you know, Guadalcanal always gets compared to R.E.M. It was good to see them on the same stage and see how different they were. Oh, And see how completely different the two bands were, you know. And we even got, like, press that said, oh, man, Guadalcanal was, like, kicked their ass, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. Good. Yeah. So... At the end of that stretch of the tour, I had to call another band meeting and say to the rest of my bandmates, I'm so sorry that I was such a jackass. You were right, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. Uh I'm glad we did it, and you guys were right, and I was wrong, and, you know, the end kind of thing. So... But as far as the best show that I ever did in my whole life, I walked onto the stage in Quebec City. This is when I was just me solo. Walked onto the stage in Quebec City in front of 20,000 people with an acoustic guitar. Were you the headliner? Yes, I was, and played it. And uh, it was the best thing I've ever done. And I wasn't even, you know, at... At first, I thought, well, I'm going to be scared of this. Uh-huh. And then I thought, well, no, I'm not. I mean, you know, just, just people. Wow. So I did. So I walked out and threw my guitar around my neck and started playing. We talked about this when we talked a few months ago, about the kind of promotional debacle of your solo album. Because they, <laughs> you know, historically gave away the first 50,000 copies. Yeah. And I have to admit, I must have just not been paying enough attention because you saying that about playing in front of 20,000 fans that are there to see you, combined with the record company giving away 50,000 albums. See, to me, I'm I'm thinking of Guadalcanal and even you as a solo artist as being more niche. You know, the jangly pop, the college rock. Are there 50,000 oh, people man. out there who want to buy Murray's album? You know? Me too. I, I, I thought the same thing. I was astonished. Yeah. So I was just always shocked that they would have given that many uh, copies away. 
Well, that's Canada they, for they it. They must have had, like, high hopes. Of, but if you're selling out a 20,000-seat place... I don't know uh, that I can gauge from this remove my own popularity at that time. <laughs> right. I don't know that I could have, I don't know that I could have gauged it even then. I'm not sure how much depth I went into last time we talked about that promotion, but I, I'm sure I must have told you that they did it and didn't tell me they were doing mm-hmm. it. You know, it wasn't that I had, you know, at that point, with a label like, like that one, you know, they they were always kind of, they had so much money, they were always kind of trying sort of outlandish things. And I thought, well, that's pretty creative. It's kind of nutty, but okay. They literally told me while I was on a promo tour, you know, flying around doing, wow. you know, radio interviews and stuff. And sure. these two guys met me that were, you know, from that department out in L.A. Or out, uh, yeah, out in L.A. And I said, you know, guess what we did? <laughs> you did work. Now, how did that even work? Could you walk into, like, Sam Goody or something and just pick one off the wall, take it into the front counter and say, I'm taking this, and then walk out oh, with it? Oh, no, 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 no. It, it, wasn't free. it wasn't free. It wasn't free to the consumer. It was oh. free to the, to the store. <laughs> All what this time. They, All this time. Okay, well, then it's... They, they took an order... That amounted to it, like in the it was pretty fast actually. The first, I think, in the first couple of days, they got orders of fifty thousand of them. You know, which was okay for a you sure. know, for me. And yeah, you know, like I said, it was, it was within the first week. I think it was in the first couple of days. And so their their big thing was that they were they went back to all the retailers and they basically said, guess what? Mm. You don't have to pay for these. Mm. You know, we're shipping them, but they're free. You know, what we want in return is we want you to give an end cap and a display and here's all the materials and you have to get, 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 all that kind of stuff. Well, the way it backfired on him, and another guy told me this, interviewed me, uh, who was keen to find out about the, the backstory on that. Mm-hmm. And he had been in retail, but he was he didn't work in a store. He worked as a, uh, whatever they used to call those, one-stops or something like that back in those days where, you know, stores would order from sort of a middle Oh, middle man. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he worked at one of those, and he said he was always baffled as to why they gave it away and why they didn't. Let me just cut to the chase. His contention was that if they had, if the label had said, okay, these are only going to cost you half price, mm-hmm. that that would have somehow been more of a springboard for them to sell them and really push them harder. I, I don't know. I don't know about the logic yeah. of that. Okay. And, and quite yeah. frankly, don't don't really care. You know, sure. I mean, sure. that record got a lot of airplay. That was a good thing. Yeah. You know, it was a, it was a really weird record for the time. I mean, it was basically a frog rock record.
I didn't think about it being that, but it makes perfect sense that that's what I would make given the resources and, you know, my own control over it. You know, that, that's the kind of record I'd go make as a, as a modern prog rock record in 1992. Leave it to you to, uh, you're never going to go with the grain. You're always going against it. So why not? Well, I mean, I didn't mean to. I, I wasn't really thinking well, about that. you are. That's your artistic vision. We were talking about that just, last time, too, about how it's like I'm not interested in writing love songs. I'm not interested in pandering to the radio. I'm going to do what mm-hmm. I want to do, and you're going to come to me. And luckily, people did. Well, I, I, mainly my deal was I just wanted it to sound like something I'd want to listen to on the radio. Sure. I mean, yeah. I wanted it to get played on the radio, but I wanted it to, it to be something that I would want to listen to yeah. on the radio if I were not the performer. But, but yeah, you know, somebody pointed it out. And I think it was actually Jeff Wall that pointed it out to me years later. He said, you know, it was weird. everybody always thought it was really weird that you went and made a prog rock record. And I said, did I? And he said, yeah, I mean, don't you think you did? And I said, you know, it never really occurred to me until you just said it. But thinking back on a lot of that stuff, yeah, it really is kind of like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's certainly not close to the edge, and it's certainly not, you know. Right. You know. First period. Any, and it's not straight up prog, but it's not like the hookiest, catchiest thing. There's some sprawl. There's some, you know, <laughs> yeah. instrumentation. Yeah. Yeah, it's, there's very ponderous pieces on that record. I think, if I remember correctly from the first time we talked, now's around the time when you start to get sort of just disillusioned with it all. And I think I remember you telling me about it, sort of an epiphany you had. You were in a home that you owned, and you it hit you all of a sudden, I am not going to be a musician anymore. And you were okay with that, if I remember right. Yeah, it was one Saturday morning. I'd gotten up real early. And my daughter woke up really early. She was about like, you know, one and a half or whatever she was. Mm-hmm. And she came steaming out of her bedroom. And I was like half awake, you know, drinking some coffee. And she sort of went, you know, running across the living room. Like, Hi, Daddy! You know, sort of, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And I looked at her and I was like, what is she wearing? And she had on. <laughs> she, she fortunately she came out of the kitchen. She ran back to her bedroom and she had on this skin tight her her for for pants where her pants should have been. She had on this like skin tight pink thing. And uh, you know, in my drowsy state, I'm sort of wondering why does my daughter look like an Auburn Avenue hooker this morning. And I realized that she had actually tried to put on these pink shorts and she put both legs down one oh, right. leg pole. Yeah, yeah. So it's like she's stretching them until they almost busted. Sure. You know, what she done. I started dying laughing. And all of a sudden I just went, you know, I'm not a musician anymore. You know, I, I don't want to tour. I, got, I want to raise this girl. And... That's it. And I literally called my manager that Monday and said, "Just, just get me out of this contract. You know, I, I don't want, I don't want to just, you know, serve uh-huh. at the label's pleasure. Thank you. You know, yeah. just get me out of it." And he was like, "Well, we should try and shop the record elsewhere." And I said, well, "That's fine. Go and go and shop it, but yeah. I'm not that keen on it. So, on on you shopping it, you know, unreleased thing I'm talking about." And so. He did a little bit, but you know he knew that, that I wasn't really there anymore. So he, I don't think he, he didn't try you know, that he, hard. He, he he may hear this and go, "Oh, I'll kill you." 
But um, because maybe he put a whole lot of effort into it that I just don't know. But I, I don't remember any of that. I just remember that that morning I just literally thought, you know, I'm done. I'm done with this, at least yeah. for now. You know? Yeah. And it yeah. turned out I really was done with it. So. so here's something I'm always curious about when I talk to people like you who have stepped away. Is it difficult to turn I, – I imagine it turning off a valve of creativity. I mean, you've been in the process for the previous 10-plus years of, you know, mining your mind and your creative, you know, talents or whatever to write songs, to chase an emotion, to feel something, and then you, tar- mm. you suddenly turn that off, and does it get backed up, or is it a, is it a, a release to actually have that over – what do you do when those juices start flowing later and you have no record deal and you're just a regular dude without a you know, without a an avenue to express yourself? Does it or does that even matter? Uh, it it didn't really. I mean I, I I just did the same thing I did before I was ever somebody with a record contract. I just mm-hmm. wrote for my own pleasure. I mean I I I, I stopped writing what what I did really was I you know, when when you've got records to make uh, especially if you're kind of diligent about writing, if you, if you really dig writing and, and you're going to do it anyway, if you've got sort of a schedule in your head, mm-hmm. which I always did, I mean, I, I would go and write all my stuff like way in advance. Yeah. Like I may or may not have told you, I mean, I wrote, I wrote in thrall the soul, the soul album, big release, plus a bunch of other material that didn't make it on that record. I wrote oh, that yeah. two years before the record ever got recorded. Oh, I mean, as soon as I signed the contract, I had the record written in six mm-hmm. months. I mean, now, some of that stuff I had sort of sitting around, and I just polished it up because it was stuff I wanted to record. But there was a lot of tons, most of it was new stuff, and I wrote all of it. I didn't do anything for six months except write, work on new songs. Mm-hmm. And it was because of Gessen's, you know, weird ideas about scheduling that, you know, I didn't, because I kept calling him, like, you know, I'm ready to make this record. When are you going to make the record? He's like, no, mm-hmm. not yet, not yet. And I was like, mm-hmm. whatever, you know. So I used to call myself a gentleman farmer, you know, because I, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I had this house with a few acres on it and stuff. And I was just like, oh, I guess I'll do a little gardening today, you know. And yeah. tomorrow I think I'll, you know, read, you know, go start reading a bunch of Faulkner that I've never read or something like that. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. all, all the shit that really doesn't, it's not productive at By all. By the way, that, but, I can't imagine a more perfect image encapsulating Murray Attaway, which is him sitting there reading Faulkner. That's like, the, <laughs> I mean, that's his, that's his like on the nose as it could possibly, possibly get. So I, that's funny yeah. that you would say that. Anyway, yeah, go he's on, always, he, he and Flannery have always been big faves of mine. But anyway, you know, we're very proud of them, you know, in the South. Yeah. But basically, to answer your question, I, I would just go and when I felt like writing something or working on a piece of music or playing guitar or something like that, I would just do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and there were a handful of times over that first 10 years that I went and did stuff anyway. Like, I mean, we went, you know, Block and Al got back together, did a few shows. So, I mean, I did stuff, you know, and occasionally somebody would ask me to sing on a record, you know, and I'd go do it and, you know, junk like that and, you know, once in a blue moon, I'd, you know, somebody would say, oh, come and do a solo set, you know, for mm-hmm. this or that, and I'd go do it, you know. And so, you know, I mean, I did some of that, and I kept writing a little bit. You know, I had more fragments, though. That was the thing. That's where I was going with it is that, you know, when you've got a, when you've got a record, you know, you've got to make a record, yeah. and you're me, you get to it. 
and you get the stuff finished, you get it ready to go. And without that, the difference was that I came up with all these different fragments of stuff that I didn't that thought, well, these will just be around, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll come back to them when I come back to them. I also did some film scores in that period, so. Oh, you know, yeah. So, I mean, there was still music going on. It just wasn't, you know, the same as the career stuff was. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, I enjoyed it. And plus, I mean, I, the best part was, you know, I got to be hands-on involved with raising my daughter and watching her grow up, and sure. which was the most important thing, you know, because yeah. the rest of it pales by comparison, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, and I have, you know, a you know, rewarding career in a completely unrelated field and, you know, and still yeah. do. So. Remind me again what you do. Well, these days I'm, I'm pretty much do nothing but web development. Wasn't it but kind of like high-end tech support or something like that? That's what I, I did for a long time, yeah. Okay. I, 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 did, uh, I did tech support networks, network uh, consulting for a long time, had a bunch of clients, and then one of them basically kept up in the ante. Full-time, kind of, right? Yeah, kept up in the ante till, till I went in full-time. And, um, and that was great, too, you know I mean? I'm, it was very filling. They, you know, made some new friends there, made a lot of money with them. You know, it was nice and, you know. And uh, then, you know, when the bottom fell out, you know, went freelance again and have been basically, you know, I love, I've always done web development and I really like, I like that better than doing consulting, even though, you know, consulting is more lucrative, but it involves actually getting up from my desk and leaving right. my house. Right. right. It's always nice. And not for not for fun stuff, you know. So I'm pretty That's happy with you know, web development pretty much. Yeah. yeah. You strike me though so, as an artist that I would I uh and I'm not trying to I mean I'm not trying to force myself on you or anything, but you seem like somebody who if you had the itch, you would independently sort of create your own write your own and record your own album. And you could just pop into anywhere. You could like Plop into Dallas on a Friday night, or LA on a Friday night, or Chicago on a Friday night, and you could just you could play it like the local, not the cafe, but you know what I mean, like a two three hundred seater, and uh, those people would come and see you, and it doesn't have to be a big thing; it can just be you and your acoustic guitar if you wanted. You'd sell Mm -hmm. some CDs there. Not everyone can even do that. You know what I'm saying? A lot of the people I talk to can't do that. But I would think I know you it's could really do that if you wanted. Maybe you don't want to. No, I can do it, and I have done it some over the last handful of years. And I and I'm just the the thing I've missed, the, the thing I'm missing, obviously, the key element is I haven't recorded anything. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to. You know, mm-hmm. I like okay. to I like to tell my friends and my wife. You know, oh, I've got I got one more record I got to make. You know, which <laughs> sounds purposely dramatic. Like you yeah, have right. just one. I got one last one, baby. You know, right? But but I don't mean it that way. I mean, I I, I suspect before the year is out, I'll have a bunch of stuff recorded. It'll be I'm going to do this thing. I've, I've had this planned out for a little bit. Actually, I've got all this material, and I've actually wanted to do this kind of. I mean, you can't even call it a record. I mean, it's, I, I was thinking the other day, why does a record have to be 10 to 13, 10 to 12 sure. cuts? Sure. Why can't it be 40 cuts? That's true. <laughs> you know, why, yeah. Or why can't it be 27? You know? Yeah, it's true. I mean, there is no format, really. Nope. I mean, it's not like you're 
it's not like you're going to put out two LPs with a gatefold cover. Uh-huh. You know, it's not so it's right. not a double album anymore. Right. You know, it's not going to be extended this or it's just, uh-huh. it's just uh, you know, an album was never anything but a collection of music. Mm-hmm. In in you know in in record parlance, that's how, you know the first albums were collections of seventy eights, literally within what looked like a photo album binder. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you collect seventy eights, you've got some. You know, yeah, yeah, I certainly do. But uh, I was just thinking, why you know, why does it have to be any specific number? But obviously, I'm not going to put out a whole you know a ridiculous amount that people just get bored listening to. It needs to be focused. Right. But I've always wanted to do a really, really stripped down record that was basically just you know some guitar, vocal, some sort of offbeat percussion, sort of like you know some of the early '90s Tom Waits stuff. You know, I've always liked what he did with. The, Banging on pots and whatnot, you know? right, right, and, and then some, and then some textual keyboard stuff, you know, yeah, yeah. and maybe a little bit of piano. I'm just gonna play it all myself unless somebody, you know, wants to jump in and help me out. I suspect I'll start putting that stuff out sometime this year. I would think you could do that, and like I said, not everyone can, and you could. And I mean, you, I think I've told you this before, but I mean, you're. Your voice, your singing voice, is a miracle. It is a miraculous oh. gift from above. It really, I mean, I'm sure, you, I'm sure you've heard that. You know this. And, I, I mean, I've watched some of the more recent, you know, sort of handheld YouTube clips that are out there of you performing. I'm, I'm mm. assuming if you feel like your voice is still there, then there's no reason not, I mean, unless you just don't have the energy or feel like it, you could totally get away with doing stuff like this. I got, I got plenty of energy. I'm not, Good. Okay. I'm not that old. <laughs> no, I didn't mean old. I just meant energy for the the process. I, I know so what I you meant. I want to get back on the meant. treadmill again. You know. I'm just but, being cute. Yeah. Okay. Just, just ignore me. <laughs> no. I. I. I uh, yeah. I definitely. Can. I mean, as far as my voice goes, my voice. It's pretty much the same as it ever was. There are certain really high notes that I used to be able to nail without a thought. Because mm-hmm. I always had a fairly extensive, you know, relatively extensive range, especially for a baritone tenor, which is, you know, technically what I am. Mm-hmm. But there, there are some really high notes that I sang on records that I can't really hit anymore. But okay. you know, they're few and far between. Most of the stuff that I ever wrote, I can still sing. I figured the day that I couldn't sing Whitney, that was when I needed to stop. Well, that's, I was just thinking the exact same thing. As long as you can nail "I See Light." In that yeah, I can, I can still do that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did, did it not that long ago, in fact. I can still sing yeah. it. Okay, I want to ask you just a few kind of bookend. They're a little random, but they're the ones, they're the questions that I've been trying to kind of intersperse in here. Number one, did you ever meet any heroes at the height of all of this? Richard Thompson. Oh, really? He's one yeah, of your twice. heroes. Oh, really? yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Just worship at the shrine. I mean, I think he's a phenomenal. Well, I mean, for, for starters, he's probably, in my humble opinion, he's he's the finest guitar player uh-huh. making, you know, still making records right now. And, and yeah. I mean, he just covers so many. So he covers the full spectrum, and he's so informed. Mm-hmm. All of his playing is so. It, it, I mean, he, he pulls from so many traditions and so many disciplines and I mean and he's really really a scholar of all this stuff you sure know? Right, I, yeah. I find him amazing I think he's a phenomenal songwriter too 
Yeah, she's and somebody that I've always meant to get into, and I've never, it's never quite, I've tried, I've never tried hard enough. I've tried, and it doesn't quite hit me, but a listener of the podcast, Jim Headley, if you're out there, he just mailed me a bunch of music, and it included a ton of Richard Thompson. And so I'm going to try and do a deep dive here and really give it another shot. Well, surely you know Vincent Black Lightning. No. Huh? Start I have that. Shoot Out Start the Lights. Word. I got Mock Shoot Out the Lights is a bunch of others. Shoot Out the Lights is my favorite record that he and his former wife Linda Thompson did. That's uh-huh. a phenomenal, phenomenal record. That I I easily yeah, put like that on okay. my top. Really? Huh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm the weird one. Top. Everyone, yeah, most people feel like you. I'm the weird one. I re- I get it. It doesn't hit me as strongly as it hits you, but well, maybe you need to start with something earlier. Yeah, maybe you need to start with something earlier. Did he? Did he give you shoot out the lights? That's the one I have. I have shoot out the lights. I mean, not shoot out the lights. Did he give you? I want to see the bright lights tonight. No, I don't think he did. That's That's a great record. Okay, I'll go after that one. That's an that's a great sort of English folk rock record that was after Fairport Convention, but it's still. Sounds a lot like Fairport Convention, just kind of updated for the time. But then Shoot Out the Lights was the finale of, of he and Linda as a, mm-hmm. as a duo and as a married couple. And it shows there's a lot of pain in it. You know, it's exquisite. I, will I, just, get, I just, own stick, it. Stick I'll with him. Stick okay. with him. And, okay. and find Vincent Black Lightning. He probably, your friend probably gave you that. That's a fine motorbike A girl could feel special on any such like Says James to Red Molly My hat's off to you It's a Vincent Black Lightning 1952 And I've seen you at the corners and cafes it seems Red hair and black leather My favourite colour scheme And he pulled behind and down to Box Hill they didn't ride okay. that's not the name of an album it's just a song oh okay oh you said you it well, it's on it's on the album Rumor and Sigh and it's it's really a masterpiece oh yeah I do have one that. Of, he did he one of the best that. songs ever written in the in the 20th century in my opinion and you met Richard Thompson did that knock yeah, you I out? met him a couple of times, and I actually tried to. I wanted to get him to play on Enthrall, but he had another project he was on, so he couldn't get loose to do it. I mean, uh-huh. he's got no reason to remember me, but you know, yeah, I was a breathless fan when I met him. We, uh, that, that's a, a little small story goes with that. The guy that used to book uh, a lot of Canal Dyer's a great guy. His name is Frank Riley, or his name is Frank Riley. Uh, I don't know who he works for now. He used to work for a, a booking agency out of New York that booked a whole bunch of real cool acts in those days. And he knew that I was a big Richard Thompson fan. And so he had booked us this tour that encapsulated my birthday. And as it turned out, my birthday my birthday is November 30th, and it either fell on this date or right around it. But he managed to get us booked in as opener, and we weren't open for anybody by that time. We were doing our own shows, but he knew that it would just, like, thrill me to death. So he got us booked as the opening act at the Ritz in New York for Richard Thompson. Oh, man. And so I was just like, oh, God, you know, it was great. And so I got to meet him. He's a very nice guy. And then I'm 
met him a few years later in Atlanta, and uh, he at least pretended to remember me. So <laughs> that was enough. Yeah. That's good. You know, it's okay. kind of like what William Burroughs said when he met Samuel Beckett. You know, they asked Burroughs what Beckett said to him or said about him later, and Beck, apparently Beckett had said, well, he's a writer, <laughs> which was like <laughs> extreme compliment to, it was extreme compliment to William Burroughs. So anyone else? Anybody? Uh, that, I, that I met? Uh, oh, Joey Ramone. Joey Ramone and I actually got to be oh. friends. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. nice! Yeah, I met him. I met him through uh, the guy that was our A uh, and R that signed us to signed Guadalcanal to Electra. Was a great guy named Kevin Patrick. I'm still friends with him. And he and Joey, he lives in New York. He and Joey were, were pals. One time I was up in in New York, spending some time up there doing record company business and whatnot. He was like, "I'm gonna go out with Joe tonight. You know, we're gonna go out to the bars and clubs. You want to go?" And I'm like, "Joe who?" And he's like, "You know, Joey Ramon." And I'm like, "But yeah." So, so we went. We went and met him at some club, and it was loud as hell, you know. And uh-huh. and what I didn't know is I always figured, you know, I'd seen the Ramones a bunch of times. This is like late '80s. I'd seen the Ramones a bunch of times. I saw them the first time they ever played Atlanta. And I never got. I always, oh, you never saw. Oh God, they were phenomenal. Um, but anyway, I always figured that, you know, when I talked those stories, I figured that was kind of an act. It, is, mm-hmm. it was not an act. That's how mm-hmm. he talked. And so we're in this club, and, you know, we sit down at the table with him. Kevin's introducing us. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm good. I said, yeah, I've been a fan of yours forever, you know, love the Ramones. He said, yeah, I left that first club in Algaria. I'm just like, oh, dear God, are you serious? What? You know, I couldn't believe he. Even, yeah, I couldn't believe he knew who I was. No. And yeah, I know. It was just like uh, it was astonishing to me. Wow. I, I, just, I was I was at a loss for words. I had to keep asking him what he said. Yeah. Because for one thing, you can't understand him. Sure. Sure. <laughs> for, another right. thing, for another thing, it was in a loud club, so you really couldn't understand. Right. But then we we you know hung out uh, a number of times over. Uh, span of about two years. I actually met some real interesting people uh, through my friend Kevin and through Joey and, and folks. I met people like Alan Vegas from Suicide and oh, folks sure. like that that I would have you know, never had any reason to meet. No. You know, pretty fun. Oh, that's great. <laughs> right on. So Joe, Joey was another one. I'm trying to think. If there's, oh, Jackson. Jackson Brown. Oh, really? That yeah. makes sense. Okay. I can see that. Yeah, he and I... Yeah, I got to be friends for quite a while. He actually sings on Enthrall. Yeah, he's read the liner notes for a long time. I gotta. Yeah, well, well, nor should you have, but you know. Well. Yeah, he's on that. The the funny thing about that is that uh, I'm surprised I didn't really tell you this when we were talking about Enthrall, but he <clears throat> we recorded the basic tracks, but not for any specific reason. It was just the studio that we picked uh, at his studio in Santa Monica, a place called Groove Masters. Really great studio. Good people. So about the second day in, you know, we got the wheel. We were only there for like a week or so, I think, because we pretty much had it down, just the basic tracks. And I kept seeing this guy in the control room, this skinny guy with dark hair with these huge glasses on. Hmm. I'm like, okay, who's this? Because he had all these people walking in and out of recording studios like that back then. Mm-hmm. You know, in Georgia, we didn't do it like that. You know, it's like we didn't tend to just have people wander in and out. But in L.A., they were real big on all that sort of sort of 
you know, casual right. thing. And uh, I kept seeing this guy, so I asked the producer, I'm like, who was that guy in the studio? And I said, oh, that's Jackson. I'm like, oh, I don't recognize him because of the mammoth binoculars he's got strapped to his face. So anyway, he said, well, let me introduce you. So he introduced me, and, you know, really, really great guy, really nice guy, just really, you know, friendly and complimentary. And he kept coming in to the sessions. And it was really funny because my wife at the time had been, like, a huge Jackson Brown fan. Oh, yeah. In, in high school and college. And she happened to fly out there to spend the week with me during those sessions. And she came mm. in one day. Right. <laughs> he was there, and I was like, Oh, Lisa, let me introduce you to Jackson Brown. She's like, basically devolved right. into a puddle on the floor. Wow. But anyway, so Jackson kept coming in, and he, you know, he'd hang out with me, and he's like, "It's good stuff, really good songwriting," you know. And, uh-huh. and finally, I right at the end of it, I said, "Well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna track the vocals here in about a month at, at the producer's little little project studio. Why don't you come over and sing on a song?" And he said, I'd love to. So, lo and behold, to just cut to make this a shorter story than it actually there's really a lot to it, but um, he picked, I said, pick whatever song. You know, I'd love to have you vocal on any song. So he picked Angels in the Trees. harmony for that song he worked his little heart out and he came fully prepared good for him and 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 we got in the the booth together or not uh, we, we got in the talent room together and we were just kind of going through i just had my acoustic guitar so i started playing it you know and i start the song and then the harmony comes in and he started singing and i just busted out laughing <laughs> and he was like, I'm sorry, I, I probably got it all right. It's probably not at all what you wanted. I'm like, that is not why I'm laughing. <laughs> right. More than I'm laughing here and Jackson Brown is singing. Oh, well, I was laughing because it's that voice. Oh, sure, you know, that, yeah. He's got a pretty unmistakable voice. Yeah, and when yeah. he opens his mouth, it's him, you know. Yeah, And yeah. just to hear him standing there singing in that beautiful voice that he's got, singing my, you know, weird-ass lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. just really sort of this surreal moment. And my, and my reaction to it was to laugh. <laughs> we all deal with these things differently. I would have, too. That's just bizarre. And, and that's why I asked if you ever meet the heroes, because it's just crazy. And now you're a regular guy back home in Atlanta. But there was a moment there, you know? And, oh, yeah. Uh, I think well, I mean, I, I met a lot of friends that were, you know, that were relatively well-known people that 
I wouldn't say met my hero, but I mean, Robin sure. Hitchcock and I were friends for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. great. I loved that his stuff and always, yeah. always have, you know, we yeah. toured together, had a lot of fun on tour together. We used to get out on it during each other's sets and things, stuff together and, you know, just yeah. had fun doing that. You know, there are other people like that, you know, Good. but, um, okay. yeah, th- those three guys were, were pretty much a big deal for me. I mean, I've met plenty of famous people, but those three guys kind of did it for me. You know, the ones that I never did get to meet obviously were, David Bowie, God rest yeah. his soul, right. Brian Ferry, and Brian Eno. You know, I would have loved mm-hmm. to have met any one of those three, but I swear to God, I don't think I would have been able to. I would have been like my wife meeting Jackson. Yeah. And I would have yeah. been a blithering clown. You know, I wouldn't know what to right. say to any of them. And what do you say to Brian Eno? Hi. Like yourself. I know. David Bowie's my, my number one favorite thing of my life. You know, I discovered him at 10 years old, and he's... Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not a day has gone by since then that I haven't thought about him and loved him. And Well, Bowie pretty much changed a lot of people's lives, mine included. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. thought very, very differently about music after I first heard Man Who Sold the World. Mm-hmm. And especially when Biggie came out, I was just like, okay, I, I, mm-hmm. I think I can just dump everything else and just kind of listen to this for the next couple of years. Those records and then seeing Iggy and the Stooges do Raw Power live in a small club in Atlanta changed you the way did? I thought about music. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I saw Iggy and the Stooges. This was with James, um, oh, God, what's his name? Um, Williamson. Player. William, uh, James Williamson on guitar, who everybody's always like, oh, that's not really the Stooges. Like, I don't care. He was great. You know, no, I don't great. care what you think. I, there's a rock writer friend of mine in New York. We always have this argument. He's like, well, that's not really the Stooges. I'm like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. He was phenomenal. I loved his guitar playing. Sure. And and seeing them in this small club, and this was when Iggy was off the chain. I believe it. I mean, off the chain. You know, like there was tables in this little rock club, and Iggy was walking across them, you know. Oh. He was hanging upside down from the rafters, busting glass on the stage and then throwing himself, you know, with his bare chest into uh-huh. the glass while singing. Yeah. yeah, it's just like, I mean, uh, I, I, it was almost frightening. I'd never seen anything like that. Nobody had. Sure. You know, and I just thought, oh, God, you know, this this is, I mean, I really had to absorb that. I mean, of course, I never acted like that live, but, you uh-huh. know, it right. makes you completely rethink what a live show is. A little bit of a uh, little story. I contacted James Williamson to be on the podcast, and uh-huh. when I did, I... I don't know why I didn't think anything of it, but when I ref- when I emailed him on Facebook, I referred to him as Jim, and it made him <laughs> so mad that he said nobody oh, really? who it, nobody who knows me would ever call me Jim, and there's no way I would do your podcast if you're gonna if you think you can call me Jim. And oh like, man, sorry man, I I I don't know why I figured Iggy's real name is Jim, and I just it yeah. just sort of came out. I was just trying to be kind of cordial. And he was so mad that I called him Jim that he refused. So that was well, my that's chance. Kind of, that's kind of precious, don't you think? I mean, uh, yeah, I did. Not. I did. I um, mean, that's weird because I saw um, some video clip of him talking about his technique and his guitar playing. This is a couple of years ago. I mean, but when he's, you know, like an older man like now. And he seemed like Joe Normal, you know. He's just really seemed pretty average. Yes, yeah, so that kind of surprised me and disappointed yeah. me, too. Yeah, it did me too. I was really shocked. And then I, I'm thinking, man, if I had just said James, I wonder if he would have, you know, been more open to doing it. I thought maybe I'd let him cool off and try again later, but 
Anyway, yeah, that kind yeah. of blew me back. Anyway, mm-hmm. well, one thing I was curious about, because you mm-hmm. and Rhett were together romantically, right? And if this is too personal, I'll cut it out. But is yeah, that, that that's it? clearly widely known. Okay. Did that, what were the dynamics? And then she, you know, she goes on to marry Jeff, right? And was that a... <laughs> She and I split really, really early in Guadalcanal. Okay. I started seeing the woman who became my first wife, Lisa, and uh, okay. and mother of my beloved daughter Emma. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it it was and 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 Brett and Jeff got together, and it was it was uncomfortable at first because we were still traveling in you know real meager style. I mean, we had our own van, but it was probably just that a van. Yeah. You know, so everybody's in yeah. kind of close, close quarters. quarters. Yeah. You know, it was it was a little rough for the first couple of months, but you just kind of roll with it. You know, I mean, to this day, you know, I mean, she and Jeff haven't been together for years, but to this day, she. Oh, I didn't is know that. My, okay. Yeah, they've been they've been separate. Uh, they've been divorced for a long time, hmm. but she and Jeff are both uh, two of my very closest friends, and my ex Lisa is too. So okay, good. Everyone's cordial. <laughs> That's good. All right. Yeah. Well. You know. We do, you know the thing the thing the thing that I think is always gonna always gonna uh, bond me to to Rhett and Jeff. I mean, if uh, just pretend there was nothing else, but there is. There's long years of friendship before Guadalcanal. But if mm-hmm. if there was nothing else, the thing that would bond at least three of us together is that we all three were privileged enough to do this extraordinary thing together that some people would give anything to do, and we got to do it. Well, I always loved that, that we shared that experience, you know. Do you have any regrets? I mean, do you look back at it? sounds like everything sort of ended on your terms, which is major. Not everyone gets that, you know, yeah, blessing in their life. But did you did you have uh, do you have any regrets looking back, something you maybe you yeah, yeah, done yeah. differently? Or? Yeah, you don't want to be the guest who ever stays the welcome. That's, that's how I wanted to get out before that happened. Uh, Regrets-wise, uh, yeah, probably if I had to say anything. I mean, I could look at it two different ways. I guess when we signed our first deal with Electra, we were very insistent on certain things. Hmm. And that worked out for us because we actually got a lot bigger percentage of our royalties than most new bands signing to a major label did in those days. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, see, we already had signed, we had already put out a popular album. Our album, first album had already come out, and it was a very mm-hmm. popular underground album, and it had come out on DB Rex, you know, Danny Beard's record label out of Atlanta that put out all that great music back then, you know, Pylon mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, Love Tractor, and, you know, there's too many to name. Um, right. And then us, and... You know, we we had everything we wanted with with DB except for extensive distribution, and that was really all we wanted out of a record deal. And so everything else, we were like, oh, and you get this, you get that, you get. Well, we don't want any of that stuff. We here's what we want. We just want you to sell the record. You know, get the record in in major stores so it'll sell. You know, maybe help us out with more. You know, mainstream airplay, and that's really all we need from y'all. We're kind of happy where we are. You know. Right. Right. And so, but and as a result, we we tended to get a little bit a little bit arrogant. You mm-hmm. know? Okay. I mean, it, it, when I say that, I have to put it in context. I mean, most bands that were young bands back then, 
that were privileged enough to get a big deal were way more arrogant than we were. Yeah, I, mean, I, can, I can imagine. It's by, it, it's by degrees, trust me. Sure. But I feel like we, we probably would have been a little bit easier to deal with and maybe gotten a little further with the label anyway if we hadn't been so arrogant. But yeah. I could be wrong because I turned right around and decided that when I signed my solo deal with Geffen, that was going to be the antithesis of that, at least for the first record, and just kind of play ball. And <clears throat> I ended up doing some things that kind of, you know, they weren't embarrassing. They were just stuff I wouldn't have normally done. I did right. some in-store that I really didn't want to do. Oh. You know, I did a few goofy little promo things that the label dreamed up that were kind of half-baked that I sh- wish I hadn't done. But, you know, I mean, it's not like those things have lived, sure. you know, some life of their own. I mean, nobody probably remembers them except me. It's right. not like I wake up in a cold sweat going, oh, God, I wish I'd never done that <laughs> that unscheduled power in-store in, you know, Mountain View, California. <laughs> oh, man, I used to work for Tower, and I uh, managed, I did the marketing for that store. That's funny. I did really, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. For Mountain View. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. I really did. I, I, they, they thought it would be a smart idea if I showed up there unannounced and played on the loading dock for the employees in the oh, middle wow. of a in the middle of a work day when they're trying to work. You know, yeah, like running a floor. That's killer. Yeah, when I right before I left Tower, the guy who maybe it was the same guy whoever managed the store, and this was ten years ago, he arranged to have the Ocean Blue come and play it in mm-hmm. store. And they're one of my mm-hmm. all-time favorite bands. And they, mm-hmm. they're they not very active, but they came in to do this. And only like 12 people were there. So uh, that was like kind of a highlight. I got to go to meet the... Well, that's the cool. And I wasn't, but I wasn't even playing for customers. No, I, I know. You were just... Literally, right. right. They literally loaded, you know, crowded everybody out to the loading dock. And uh, <laughs> I, I pulled out my acoustic guitar and played right then. That's crazy. Yeah. Was it after I hours? No, it was during the work day, I'm telling you. It was oh like near as a damn day. You know, it was probably about like one o'clock in the afternoon or something. <laughs> like I said, they're trying to run a retail store. Uh-huh. And like, okay, everybody came back out on the back dock and hear Murray Hathaway playing. You know, some of them really wanted to, as I recall, and some were just like, you know, why, why do we have to do this? Well, cool. Thank you so much, Murray. I, I love you a lot. I think you're great. Well, and I am so humbled that you've given me all this time. And, well, uh, thank you for all your patience with me. And, but, no. Thank you for all your patience with me and my crazy schedule, too. All right, there you have it, Murray Attaway. I really love him. I know that Guadalcanal Diary and him as a person mean a lot to people. I hope that those people who feel as strongly about him as I do got something out of this conversation. I'm really grateful that he talked to me. Please go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast and write us a review. And you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can stay in communication with us that way. You can send me a note if there is anyone you want me to try and track down that you hadn't heard from for a while and that you always liked and wondered about. You can email me at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can just send me a message on Facebook if you want. Also, go to our playlist on YouTube, The Hustle Podcast Playlist. I update it with videos from our guests all the time, interesting ones, kind of more obscure things if possible, just to give you an idea, more context into who these people are in their lives. And then you can find us on Twitter, at The Hustle Pod. Huge thanks to Yan Makevich, Yan the Man, as always, for producing this podcast. And we hope to hear you guys and see you next week. Thanks, everybody. 